Madison Story Slam. It's me, Adam Rosted, your host. And we are back with the second half of the death, sex, and money theme. A lot more great stories on this episode of the podcast. But first, let's tell you about when we're coming back from our summer break. Hey, I hope that your two months off from Story Slam have been as good as mine have been. I've I've felt rejuvenated and refreshed. I have been working hard on different things. We're going to change some things up this upcoming season. But uh, August 19th, Saturday, August 19th at the Wilmar Center will be our first Story Slam back for the 2017-2018 season. And it's going to be a good time. Doors at 6, stories at 7. And what's the theme? It's going to be the good, the bad, and the awkward. Because everybody has a good story, a bad story, and probably a story about a time that they've been awkward. So come out and hear great stories, sharing some great beer from Ale Asylum, a little more about them later. Uh, anyway, on this episode of the podcast, there's a lot of great stories, as always, and uh, we're excited that you have chosen, chosen, made the choice to join us. Anyway, without further ado, our first storyteller you've heard from a few times, and it's always wonderful. So here's Maria de la O. stories tonight are reminding me of a year ago at the slam um, last May when we did the dirty laundry theme. Um, my friend Melinda from high school, her story reminded me of that because I, that very night actually, had certain personal experiences where it seemed that red glitter that I had put on my face ended up coming out of every crack and crevice in my body, but I won't tell that story tonight. Um, and since at that slam, I already told my death story where I talked about my first uh, boyfriend in high school. Um, who was very abusive and basically made me feel like I wanted to die, actually ended up committing suicide. And I told that story that night. Adam probably doesn't remember because I think he was really ill that night and I felt terrible because like, he had to go back and somebody had to host for him for a little while. They were like, Adam said that the sickness was winning and not him or something about like, we had that I fought the law theme and it always reminded me of that because he was like, yeah, I said that the, uh, it was like his way of saying that the law won. It's like the, the sickness was winning, but uh, he pulled through. Thank you, Adam, for everything you do. He, he pulled it together. He always does. Um, but since, uh, you know, I try to dress in theme and uh, my hair is teased and I'm wearing pleather, and it's not green, and I already told my death story, I think we can all guess what I'm gonna talk about. So in the immortal words of the uh, great iconic duo, Salt and Peppa, let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> so one time, <laughs> uh, when it was, it was October 25th, 2014, because I remember things too vividly, um, I did something that I never thought I would do, which was I ended up being the date uh, to a frat brother for his UW homecoming frat party. And if you're kind of shaking your head in disbelief, don't worry, I was too. Uh, I was like in the geek, the, the geek squad in high school, like the real life geek squad that you know got into the liber, lightsaber fit, uh, fights at lunch. So didn't think that this would ever happen to me. But honestly, the guy who was my date or I was his date, he was kind of like that too. He was in all the sports teams over at my second high school that I graduated from at West. But he was like the weak link or like the, the runt of the litter in all of them. Like he was kind of the joke of the West High wrestling team. 
And, but he still, you know, was on it. And he was like this, in high school, he was this rich kid who probably should have gone to Edgewood, the Catholic high school in Madison. Cause he was, he was, you know, raised Catholic like me and I didn't want to go cause A, I couldn't afford it. And I was tired of being tormented by like white guys in Catholic school. Um, so I went to public high school, but he lived right near there. So I always thought, why didn't he just go? And I think a lot of people had this thought too, because I would hear stories of him like bragging in class about how many square feet his house was. Um, I don't think he did that with the frat house, but he went on, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a Cinderella story, my favorite princess, because he went on to become, you know, going from like the weak link in the wrestling team's chain to being one of the biggest assholes on Fraternity Row, so like a lateral move, he's moving on up, and uh, we had been in and out of each other's lives, he had been younger than me when I was in high school, and we didn't know each other back then, we just knew of each other, and then when he got to college and he turned 18, he started talking to me again on Facebook, and we ended up getting what I thought was close, and oddly enough, he actually helped me to heal from some of my past relationships just by talking to me because he was this boy who I barely knew who randomly complimented me one day and we spent hours talking over the internet and via text and when we talked about our pasts and I told him about my fucked up abusive relationships he always told me how I deserved so much better and how I never should have been treated that way and I felt like he was sincere and it was strange to me that he ended up becoming a frat boy but he did and I had had my heart broken yet again by this other boy, Joe, who I always tell stories about here. And this was in between times that me and him were in contact. So I'm like, what the hell? I don't, I don't really go to shows anymore. I wasn't going to shows at this point. It's a Saturday night. Like, I have nothing better to do. I'll go to this party. And the whole time, my best friend, Sammy, who had been in his grade in high school and had known him since middle school and told me how awkward he was, was saying, like, Maria, I, I don't think you should do this. Like, he's a frat boy. Like, do you know what goes on at frat parties? And she's starting to freak me the fuck out. She's like, do you know what they, they do at frat parties? And I'm, like, getting more and more paranoid. I felt okay about it at first, but the whole week, she's just getting me all psyched up, and I'm Googling on the Internet, like, horrible things that happened at frat parties. So I'm like, maybe I should do what I did in high school and bring a giant scissors with me in my purse like I know how to shoot guns but like I don't have a license so I was like well I maybe I just bring the scissors and like I'll feel safe you know a great start to, to any evening but I'm planning out what I'm gonna wear I even put on my Facebook I was like so ladies um anybody who's like been to college like what do you wear to a frat party? Like, what kind of shoes? Because, like, I want to wear heels, but, you know, I don't want them to get stuck. And everyone's like, don't wear heels. They'll get stepped on. They'll get vomited on. Uh, you should wear boots because, like, if the police come, like, you can run real quick. You know the cops are going to show up. And I'm like, uh, okay. I wanted to wear flip-flops, but they're going to get stuck to the floor. So I finally settle on some Converse, and I put on this outfit that I'm th I hope is going to be appealing to this guy. I felt like Buttercup from uh, Powerpuff Girls because it was, like, a pink solid dress with, like, a little lace middle, and I did my hair up all like high ponytail Ariana Grande, which I assure you was really at peak popularity at that time. This was 2014, okay? It was Ariana Grande's year, you guys. So I show up there and I'm super nervous, like walking in by myself. I don't know anybody but this guy. And I, I start to think because my friend had walked me there. She was like, well, you know, Maria, this could just be a joke. And I'm like, she's tapping into like my worst fear of like in middle school when I got asked out as a joke by all the white, aforementioned white jock dudes. She's like, this could just be a joke. He could just be bringing you to this party to make fun of you. And I'm like, I looked at her and I was like, you know what, Sammy, you need to stop. If he is doing this as a joke, I will destroy him. 
I will ruin his life. I will spread his name all over town. It's going to, horrible things that I say about him are going to spread faster than chlamydia on that college campus. So I'm like, I, I don't give a fuck anymore. I need to have fun. And I almost didn't even end up going to the party because I stayed at the, I, we hung out at the union first. I saw this band play. I was reminded of my ex and I got really sad. And I'm like, maybe I just shouldn't even go. Like, maybe it's not worth it. I watched Catching Fire to psych myself up because that's what I always do. I watch one of the Hunger Games movies whenever I'm nervous to get myself psyched up. And I see like Katniss go up to the horse that she's petting like before the, you know, uh, rehearsal or whatever it is that they do or they parade them out and she's like how did we get here huh and that's what I'm thinking I'm sitting in the union I'm like how did I get here like I thought I was in love with this other boy and I was you know made fun of by all these type of guys why am I going to this party but I go anyway and I step into the house and immediately I hear Maria Maria and there he is John because I don't change names and this was a period of my life where <laughs> Every guy was a J. There's, there was like the John and the other John before him, which was Joe's little brother, the first guy that ever had a crush on me, which was a huge deal. First boy ever asked you to dance in middle school. It's a big fucking deal, you guys. And then there was James, my gay sugar daddy in high school. It's a long story. Um, and you know, and then Joe and then Jake and like, here's another one, guys. Um, I kind of moved on to A's after that, I think, but that's another story. I'm now on the A's, I'm back to the A's, but it was J time then, and so here's John, and his name was really similar to the Terminator guy. I always wanted to say John Connor, but it wasn't John Connor. So we go in there, and I hear music pumping right away, and suddenly I'm relieved, because I'm like, okay, Everybody seems, you know, pretty chill, and it's music from 2011, which is just perfect, because, like, I'm not into pop music on the radio right now, no offense, Ariana Grande, but, like, I really liked the, you know, the hits from 2011, so this whole party is, like, outdated, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be just fine, like, they're not the coolest fraternity on campus, they were the one, the only one on campus, on Langdon Street, that doesn't have Greek letters, and their fraternity name, like, it sounds like a, a girl's name, like, when I told it to James, the aforementioned gay sugar daddy, he said, he was like, that's the fraternity it sounded like you were saying memoirs of a geisha and I was like no it's just one word but it sounds it sounds like a woman's name so like I'm kind of thinking maybe they're the loser fraternity on campus but okay that's fine with me so I'm in there and this guy immediately comes like skittering like a whirling dervish like up to John and he's like John John man man you gotta tell me man where where are the women and John's like uh you know they're here dude and he's kind of trying to push him off he's like no he starts screaming he's like but where are the women man what happened to the women and John's like dude they're all around and like at the dirty laundry slam last May this guy came up and told a story about his fraternity and I remember him saying like at, at one point he was at a frat party and uh, a guy who sounds very similar uh, was, you know, wearing an inflatable, like, dinosaur thing that you wear in the pool, and he was talking to it, and he was getting, like, stock tips from it, I think. He thought it was talking back to him. This, this might have been the same person. I don't know. Kind of sounds like it was. He sounds like the type who would get stock tips from, like, a floaty. But he's like, no, where are the women, man? And John's like, okay, dude, they're all around. Go, go find your own, okay? And he, like, shoves him off. And we get out there, and the 2011 music is still playing, and, like, give me everything tonight by Neo is playing I'm like oh yeah this is my jam and I'm snapping and, and John comes up and he starts dancing behind me and I do that thing that I you know have done since my own uh, female sexual awakening is when I'm grinding on a guy that I really like. In my head, it's like the race to give him a boner. I'm like, I'm gyrating my ass against you. You should get a fucking boner. Come on, let's see how long it takes. Like, in my head, that's my mantra. Like, I haven't been laid in months. Joe wouldn't sleep with me for whatever reason. So I'm like, I really need to get laid. Like, yeah, and the music's pumping and I'm gyrating and some guy starts taking his clothes off on top of the speakers and John's like, hey, you wanna do that? And I'm like, if you do it with me, that shut him up real quick. 
But finally, uh, as it, the music uh, segues into an LMFAO song, I'm like, ah, oh, I can't really take this. Like, I'm not gonna do the, the wiggle song or whatever that lame song is. Like, so I whisper to John, can we go to your room? What? Can we go to your room? And his eyebrows shoot like all the way to the top of his head. My room? Yeah. And he grabs my arm with such force and he just like yanks me the fuck out of there. He's holding my hand and he's interlocking the fingers and we like run down the stairs. And that's when I start to get hesitant again because it looks like a lab where they do experiments on like mutants or something. My mystique dress maybe made me think of that, but... It's like white flickering fluorescent lights and I can hear this little faint buzzing sound and it smells vaguely antiseptic, which I'm sure was on purpose because you have to cover up the smells of like a frat house, I'm guessing. And he like drags me in there, but I'm okay with it, you know? And so we get into the room and it's kind of what you would expect out of a frat boy's room. There's like one poster for Pulp Fiction so that they can pretend that they're like already in worldly because that's their idea of like a hipster film. You know, and then there's like some classic rock posters in the corner, which I know are not his because he is the definition of a fuckboy who only listens to like EDM and shit, like caked up and diplo. So I'm like, I go to him, I'm like, I know those posters aren't yours. You're not a rock and roll man. I would know. I date them almost exclusively. And he's like, well, how do you know I'm not a rock and roll man? Like he's somehow offended, even though he's the one who chooses to listen to that music. Not me. So... I see a poster of a half-naked blonde girl above his bed. Like, he's really not proving any of the stereotypes wrong. And then I see a giant Captain America poster on the other side, which just cheers me up, because I'm like, that was my nickname for him when we would text. So I'm like, oh, I see you got that poster, and he pretends like it has nothing to do with me, even though it probably did, because he wasn't really with a lot of girls at that time. So eventually he puts on the TV, because like that's what guys do to get girls in the mood. Like forget foreplay, it's like lazy 2017 time or 2014. And he puts on the show that like every college dude that I've like been to their room wants to put on when I'm there. Do you want to watch Archer? Like, no, I don't. And like every time, every fucking time that I end up in the room with a college guy, not only is it Archer, but it's the same episode. He like puts it on. And it's the one when Archer, which I don't even fucking watch, he, do, he goes to the doctor and he has like male breast cancer and he's like smoking a joint in the doctor's office and he's like, isn't it so funny he has breast cancer and he's smoking a J? And so I'm like, <laughs> and then he like puts his arm around me and we turn off the lights, he turns off the TV, we end up in bed. I take off all my jewelry, including one of my bracelets, which says dreams do come true because like one of my dreams was to sleep with him. So we end up sleeping together, and I feel very magical. And somebody starts banging on the door, banging on the door. Hurry up, hurry up. And we're like, okay, oh, dude, I'll be out in a minute. Okay, so we're done. And finally, we get back out there. It was, it was magical for me, more magical than it sounds, and I know it was magical for him. Finally, I get back out there, and somebody has vomited all over the floor, so he's like, well, you can stay, but like, I'm like, no, I'm not going to stay for the vomit, so I'll leave, and we end up, you know, not seeing each other for a few months. We have one more tryst in that bed, and after I leave that time and I see him out on the frat lawn, I have this feeling of like, this is going to be the last time I see him, so, and it turned out to be because he ignored me after that, and then I saw him on the street a couple months later. And I didn't say anything. I saw him with the girl that he ditched me for and just completely cut me off after that. And I wanted to say something real bad, wanted to throw my drink on his head. I didn't do it, but every time I walk past the uh, lawn of Acacia Frat House, I always make sure to spin on it. And I would end this with a fuck you, John, but I already did, and that was the luckiest night of your life. So, boy, bye.
Thank you, Maria. Our next storyteller, I believe it's his first time here, so therefore it will be his first story. Please put your hands together for Brandon Kennedy. Hey, how's it going, people? Uh, first night at Fight Club, uh, you got to fight, right? That's what I'm here for, right? So, uh, me, like uh, you heard, my name is Brandon. I, I used to go by a different name, though. Uh, it was Renegade One Golf, and that was when I was overseas in Iraq. And so that name was only heard over uh, a radio, an encrypted radio. And, uh, you know, they gave you uh, three options for the stories tonight, and one of them was sex. And, uh, yeah, my sex life is a joke, so <laughs> here, here we go. Uh, the other one was uh, money. And uh, I'm fucking pretty fucking goddamn broke, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to talk about that, so. Well, let's talk about death. Welcome one, welcome all to death. So, you know, when I was overseas, um, I joined the Army first as a tank mechanic, right? I figured I wouldn't make my mama sad, you know, that she wouldn't cry over me being a tank mechanic there overseas in Iraq. But that, that didn't work out, man, because uh, I sat there and uh, went through basic training. I went through AIT, and then after that, they trained me to recover tanks with a uh, tank recovery vehicle. And uh, I got to my unit, and by the time I got to my unit, all the positions were filled for um, the people who could fix tanks. So. Um, by the time I got overseas, what, what they asked me to do was they asked me to join an explosive ordnance disposal team. And when I, I was over there, um, you know, within my first three months of deployment, uh, I sat there and all I did was find bombs. I, I went on over 300 missions during my first three months of deployment. And part of our mission was to sit there and um, investigate bombs after they happened, you know. So I, I was fully aware of what those right roadside bombs could do to people. And 90% of our missions were at night. So we're driving down this road called Route Tampa, MSR Tampa. And we're driving down there and it's all craters and places where the Army Engineering Corps filled in, you know, with cement blocks and whatever uh, they could do. Um, no, it was scary, man. It got so scary some nights that I would sit there and I'd be on my 50 cal 
riding down the road doing 40 miles an hour down these roads and you know that uh, by the time you could identify one of those bombs, the triggers for those bombs, you won't even be able to see it. You know, it's, so I, I just kept my eyes closed and I drive down the road, 50 cal in hand, you know. Um, it wasn't fun. It never was. Um, but I did it. Like, I had the option to get out of the platoon. I could have gone away. I could have found another job. But I, I did it because if it wasn't me, someone else would have had to do it. And so I kept doing it. And I'd see... I'd go on to missions. There was the missions we just respond to, and eight-foot crater in the ground. You know, I, I saw like where they they set off a bomb at an Iraqi police checkpoint. And this building was probably 50 meters away and the bomb had literally cracked the building in half. I could see the light from one side of the building to the other. But that was that, you know? You don't really, you aren't really allowed to allow yourself to feel the impact of those missions, you know, you, because you got to be able to function. You got to keep going. You got to keep going until it's done. You know, you, you aren't allowed to have your own personal feelings. You just go, you keep going. And I, I'd be sitting there, like, probably the most demanding part of the mission is you'd sit there and you'd get called out to one mission and then you'd get back to the FOB and be able to sleep for an hour. Then you'd get called out for another mission. It was just follow-on mission after follow-on mission. And, you know, that's how it goes. So it goes is freaking uh, Kurt Vonnegut would say. Um, and you sit there, you know, and you see. And you know you're doing right because you're doing right by those Iraqi children. Like, I can't tell you how many bombs I removed from, helped remove from in front of Iraqi children's homes. Um, I mean, I, I could tell you individual stories, but like, what good is that gonna do? I mean, would any of you really understand? I mean, I, I could tell you about the time where the Iraqis 
took a pile of fertilizer and filled it up in a culvert underneath the road. And they sat there and they fermented their own piss for months at a time and mixed that with the fertilizer. Then set off a bomb that killed some of my friends. I, I could tell you about how it wasn't the actual blast that killed them because at that time we actually had MRAPs which are the mine-resistant trucks, you know. I, I could tell you that it's not the explosion that kills you, that it's the pressure wave, just like any other, just like a diver coming up too fast from the ocean. I could tell you all that shit. I guess I did. <laughs> I don't. I I honestly don't even know what I'm doing right here. <laughs> um. You know, but if anything, I I just want to give that to you. You know, I want you to understand that it's. Not all about you. I mean, even, I'm, I'm sure like some of you out there might have some feelings about us soldiers. You might think we're baby killers. <laughs> but but we, we tried to do good there. Like I, I put my ass on the line every day for a year and a half. And uh, I guess that's about what I have to give you. And uh, Thanks, Brendan. Um, what we do here is so cool. A lot of what we do here is joking around and, and making people laugh. Um, but the real meat of what we do is, is bridging the gap between us and understanding the commonality between us and tearing open our chest and exposing our heart to anybody who's sitting here. And uh, I just want to thank Brendan again uh, for sharing that with us. I'm sure it's not easy. Uh, please clap again for Brendan, please.
You know, I really do think that that is one of the coolest things about Madison Story Slam is we get a lot of funny stories, but every now and then we really do get somebody who comes up on stage and really just dares to to expose their heart and their feelings. And I love that our audience is willing to hear that and respond to it in a good way. I also love that Ale Asylum sponsors Madison Story Slam. I love that they believe in what we're doing. They believe in the building community through storytelling part. They believe in great stories. And they also believe that a little bit of beer might help the night go down a little more smoothly. So if you support Madison Story Slam, you should also support the businesses that support us. So be sure to go to Ale Asylum, order food, order beer. They've got tons of great stuff on tap. And we just want to thank Ale Asylum again for supporting Madison Story Slam. Let's go back to the stories. All right, so up next we have a first-time storyteller. So be extra kind and gracious. His name is Jason, and his last name is Skinner. So please clap for Jason Skinner. Awesome. Uh, my name's Jason. This is a story about death. Uh, something that happened earlier this week. I'm at work. It's, it's when it's going on. And everyone struggles with death. So, so at first, you know, it's, it's like, what do I do? It's like, it's kind of, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's confusion, there's anger, and all this is going on. And it's like a Tuesday. I work in a machine shop, so there's, there's stuff whirring and people hammering. and um, so, so I go over to the window and you know, it's it's a sunny day, and like, what a better day! It's whenever it's sunny, and um, and I'm just, you know, all these thoughts are going through my head. All this, you know, so many flowers, unpollinated, and um, just opportunities lost. And I think about the the effect on the community too. You know, different. Um, how's this going to impact? not only myself in the future, but everyone in my community and people around me and just the world. And so I go over to the window and I get a box, a cardboard box. And it was difficult for me. I tried, you know, I tried to, I tried to, I tried to be peaceful. I wanted a peaceful resolution to this tried to stay calm. It's a little scary. Everyone goes through it, but but eventually I had to take the box and I had to kill the bumblebee that got inside work and and um, and I, I wanted to trap it and take it outside, but <laughs> so like I just you know I mean I'm thinking like man with all the bees going on, or with all the bees not going on, apparently, and so it's like, 
So it really it shook me up because I'm like, you know, mid-work day and here I am killing bees, you know, like just some joker. So I just, uh, it was sad for me because no one likes to kill animals or bees or insects. And, and, um, but I gave it a proper burial. I threw it outside, so, so like, it was, you know, at that point, it was still part of the food chain, so I'm thinking, hey, someone's getting a free meal out of this, and um, God saved the bees, you know? That's my story. Some, something out there knew that we needed something lighthearted. So, thank you very much, Jason. Uh, our next storyteller, I believe also your first time, right? All right, another first timer. Please give it up for Leo Sims. Oh, the microphone is a uh, perfect height. It's like, that's great. Um, anyway, yeah, this is my uh, first time. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you so much to the Madison Story Slam. Um, so I want to start with a story and preface this that this is about sex, but also about cats. Uh, <laughs> not, not in the way you might be thinking. Um, so so I, um, I'm, I'm a big cat lover. And um, so I, I've taken care of lots of cats. I'm actually babysitting a friend's cat right now. Uh, I just, I feel like I have a big connection to cats in that uh, in the years I've learned that most cats just sort of want you to feed them, touch their butts a little bit, and then leave them alone. Um, and I'm like, oh damn, me too. <laughs> but, um, so anyway, um, about a, uh, almost two years ago now, I, I adopted a cat. Her name was, uh, I named her Mishka. Um, she was like this tiny little brown tabby. She was gorgeous. She was super sweet. I called her my little noodle, my string bean. And um, I don't know, like I guess the modern cat lover does, uh, I made a Facebook page for her. <laughs> And I added a bunch of friends. I was like, oh, this is so cute. Look at my cat. <laughs> but um, later down the line, I was like, huh, how, how could I level this up a bit? And I decided to make a Tinder account for her. <laughs> if you're not familiar with Tinder, it's a dating app where you swipe right on the people that you're like, OK, yeah, I'd, I'd smash. And, <laughs> and then everyone else, you're like, down the trash. Um, but um, anyway, so I made a Tinder for my cat. Uh, I uh, still have a screenshot of her profile. It's a picture of her wearing a Sailor Moon costume. And it says, I love cuddling, chasing fuzzy objects, and sleeping all day and night. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it, was, it was just like sort of a joke in the beginning. It, it was really fun. Uh, I would just like sort of swipe right on everyone and <laughs> see what happened. I actually ended up matching with someone who I had fooled around with a year prior. And, and it, it, it felt so dirty. I was just like, this person doesn't know who I am. 
<laughs> they said, me, you, a bag of catnip, and bad choices. Um, it's also kind of striking because, like, like the amount of, uh, I mean, majority straight males who would, who would start off the first message with um, things along the lines of, uh, and this is a verbatim example, you are such a pretty pussy, I wish I could come play with you, winky face. <laughs> they think that's clever. Uh, <laughs> they really do. Uh, and what was most striking to me about this whole endeavor was that I met more, I, I received more like phone numbers and requests to meet from people than I did w than when I just had a Tinder account for myself. <laughs> I, I was also very shocked. Uh, like there were some people who uh, sort of made plans under the pretense that they wanted to have a play date with my cat. Uh, and then it sort of ended up as a play date for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, I, um, it, it's, it's sort of cool also, the, the bond that you get with just people who love cats uh, um, and people who are genuinely excited and like, oh, I can't hear so cute. Um, and uh, then after about a month, my cat actually got banned from Tinder. Because <laughs> apparently somebody really hates the, the, the prospect of my cat finding happiness with another human. <laughs> you know, don't kink shame me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, um, but yeah. But then, um, I guess uh, uh, about five months after uh, my cat had been banned, uh, I, I'd been sort of like uh, every once in a while seeing someone who I'd met through my cat's tender. But then she, she sort of just all of a sudden died. Uh, it turned out, sorry, it was sort of like a big bomb to drop. But um, my, um, she apparently had a, um, a rare heart defect called persistent right aortic arch. It only been something like 20 ca like documented cases of this occurring in cats. Um, and it was extremely tragic for me. I, um, I was devastated and I couldn't help that with her, she took my personality because I identify so strongly with cats. And in addition to that, she sort of took away my sex life as well. <laughs> so yeah, that's my story, thanks. Thank you, Leo. Our next storyteller, is named Ben, so please put your hands together for Ben Klepzig. I did not hold my twins while they were alive. They lived for only 90 minutes. It's been almost 20 years. And I cannot tell you with certainty why. I may have felt that I needed to be there for their mother. I may have felt like I would have more time. I may not have been brave enough. It's something that I regret still uh, and is my greatest regret from that time. 
They called it incompetent cervix. I made the doctors and nurses call it uncooperative cervix because I thought that was really a terrible, shameful, misogynistic thing to say. We fought for three weeks in the hospital to keep them inside. And I deflected pain and fear with humor to the point where nurses would have to warn each other when they change shifts, this room's different. I did take pictures, we held them after. They were very helpful. They, I was, uh, photography is a hobby, they were great pictures. Um, there are things that you don't know because almost nobody's in that situation. The support, the outpouring of support that you get, um, the grave plot, the coffin, the headstone, all donated because nobody wants to put an extra burden on a family going through that. There's a, a community of bereaved parents, parents who have lost children around birth, miscarriage, stillbirth, uh, infant death. And one of the words of wisdom that they share is a loss like this rewrites your address book. Your world is separated into people that get it and people that don't. Even within my family, I had people saying, well, you know, you shouldn't be grieving so hard because, you know, they weren't really your children. They didn't live that long. The return to work was challenging. The people close to me at work were great amazing, supportive. You find yourself in situations where there are acquaintances or people that you're meeting for the first time for, as part of a business deal. And I was 20 years younger. The natural question in making small talk and starting a meeting is, do you have any kids? And saying no felt like a lie. It felt like it didn't pay honor to the children that I did have. But saying yes in that situation meant I was about to open up a whole world of intimacy with people that I didn't know in a work situation, and that felt wrong. Over the course of a couple months, I came to terms with reality for me in that moment, which is you ask the question, you get the answer. And so I started sharing my story, and I was amazed. There were people that would have their own story, or their sister, or their brother, people that it had happened to. In the early days, there would be people who would, when you're dealing with someone who's grieving, you feel obligated to say something. You want to try and reach out. You want to try and ease their pain somehow. And so I heard a lot of things like, it was God's will, or, there are two more stars in the sky tonight. Or, you can't see it now, but something good will come out of this. I had a lot of anger at the time, and I frankly wanted to punch a lot of them because that's presumptive. 
you know, you're trying to tell me how to interpret or deal with that part of my life. I've thought a lot about the, the experiences that I had and, and what I learned, and the life that I've lived since then. And I won't say that something good came of it, but I will say that something worthwhile came of it. I went through the worst thing that can happen to you. And I made it through to the other side. That means that any situation that I'm in, something terrible is happening at work, something's hard in a relationship, it's not the worst thing in the world. It means that I'm steady, I'm a rock because I've already had the worst happen to me, this ain't shit. The other thing is that I'm at a place in life, I'm here, I'm here because of the journey that I've had. All the things that have happened to me cumulatively lead to me arriving here. I have a biological son, I have an adopted daughter, I have a stepdaughter, I have an amazing wife, I have a good life, I have a great life. I can't trade this life for a life with the twins, but I wouldn't if I could. I'm happy. Thanks, Ben. Our next storyteller has told so many stories at StorySlam, it's hard to count how many he's told. He has told stories about shitting on his friend as a little boy. One of the last stories he told was about how he stole his personnel file from the US government. And one of my favorite stories that he's told is a story about a time his wife cooked him a meal and he said, I'm not eating this shit. That story you can find on our Best Of CD. These are their stories, Volume 1. Please put your hands together for Tom Schmidt. Sean Spicer, right? couldn't resist. <laughs> so um, we've got three topics tonight and uh, so I'll touch on, on all three. Um, but first, because I'm a, a little bit older than some of the people here, I have the opportunity to uh, uh, tell you the way you should be living your life. <laughs> um, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, 
Well, actually, maybe I will a little bit. <laughs> the, uh, one of the things that I've noticed over the, the last number of years is um, I'm 70 now, and there's a couple other people in here that are, you know, their 60s, 70s, and um, I started noticing that I was starting to figure out how many years I have left versus, you know, uh, you know what I'm going to do in, you know, I'm going to, I've got to get pregnant in the next number of years because after 40, I'm no good anymore for children. Or I've got to get a job uh, that'll pay X number of dollars so I can buy a house, whatever. So I started noticing that, you know, I was starting to think about in terms of, well, okay, do I got 10 years? Do I have 17 years? And, uh, it's just, it's just uh, something I'm going to throw out to you. It's just, it's just a difference that at some point, in, I think in all of our lives, we're going to start thinking in terms of, you know, where the end is. Okay, so that kind of falls into the death category. So my dad um, died twice. Uh, my dad had Alzheimer's. Um, and the Alzheimer's was the first time he died. Um, he started, you know, over the years we started, you know, watching Dad, my sisters and I and, and my mother, and uh, we started noticing changes. You know, he, my dad always, he he would like to he liked to be the center of attention. He liked to joke. He liked to laugh. He liked to well. He enjoyed life a lot. And we started noticing over the years. You know, things started changing. Dad uh, couldn't tell jokes anymore. Um, he uh, started forgetting our names. Um, he started forgetting, you know, where his car was. Um, very, anyway, various things started showing up over the years. And, uh, you know, it was disheartening, but at the same time, uh, Dad was still a, you know, a strong, energetic guy. Um, you know, this started happening maybe when he was in his, his 80s, in that general area. And uh, Dad was a scratch golfer when he was a little bit younger. And he would be able to tell, you know, what his score was, but he'd be able to, on every hole. But he'd also tell everybody in the foursome what their score was on every single hole. And when he played cards, he would know what all the suits that had been played. Good card players can do that, and Dad could do that. But after a while, he couldn't do it anymore. And even though he could hit a ball just so gorgeous, he quit playing because he couldn't remember what the score was from hole, on the third hole when he was on the 17th hole. You know, or how many 
divots he had made, whatever the case was. He just couldn't do it anymore, so he quit. He quit playing golf. We tried to get him out hitting balls, my sister and I, um, and uh, he wouldn't go. He wouldn't, it, even though it, was, it wasn't a matter of keeping score, he wouldn't go because it was no longer something he was capable of in the way he used to be capable of doing it. And all in all, he was, he was pretty, he was pretty mellow. He would occasionally go on a rant about that damn bastard. And he'd, it would be difficult to get him off of this rant because none of us knew who this damn bastard was. <laughs> but he'd get into this thing about this damn bastard and mom wouldn't have enough money once he was dead. And I mean, he didn't know he was going to die, but you know, he would go on this rant. In fact, and he didn't know who this damn bastard was either. We'd ask him about it. But we found out, the damn bastard was the guy who bought my dad's factory. My dad had a, owned a factory. And he was a successful businessman. He also never graduated high school, which I find kind of amazing, actually. I mean, but, but he was well-read, and he was a very, very intelligent man. But that damn bastard, and he'd go on about that damn bastard. Well, Dad, when he sold the factory, part of the deal was he would get X number of dollars, and it was a sizable amount of money, and he would, um, but part of that money was gonna come, you know, installments so that, you know, his taxes wouldn't be so high. And uh, so he, Part of the deal was he would have his own office and he would be there and the new owner of the factory would consult with him or ask him to do this or ask him to do that. So dad would go sit in his office at the factory and the guy would never, never came in his office, never asked dad anything. And dad would sit there and he would play crossword puzzles. He'd call up clients that he, you know, was friendly with. And he always had this deal when he'd call up somebody and they always knew it was him. Because he would always say, uh, this is Mr. Pants. You know, Philip Pants. Or Chuck Wagon. <laughs> or Claude Freely. And these people would, would love it. But after a while, you know, I mean, he wasn't the owner of the business anymore. And he wasn't bringing in business to these people, so it was inappropriate. Not that it bothered Dad that he was inappropriate. I mean, he had a, he printed on one of his delivery vans, we tightened loose women. He made washers and nuts. And that's what he put on his van. Well, he had to take it off his van because none of his delivery men would drive the damn thing. <laughs> we were at a church softball game. At the church softball game, Dad hit a double. And one of the guys hollered out, 
Hold the bag, Fred. So Dad took both of his hands and grabbed his package and stood on second base. Well, anyway, I loved it. <laughs> I mean, how could you not like a guy that could do that at a church picnic or at a church softball game? So anyway, Dad and I, at one point, I asked Dad if he wanted to come with me and drive out to Montana together. My son had a, can a canoe and kayak shop, you know, like Rutabaga here in town. And so Dad and I got in my, in my van and we hooked up the trailer and we put 14 boats on the back of it and a couple on top of the vehicle and we drove out to Montana together. We laughed, we listened to music, we had a, a really nice you know, father and son time. He slept a lot. We'd get to gas stations and uh, you know, you, play you, you can play games with your parent occasionally, even if they have Alzheimer's. You, play, you can play games with them. It's okay. They don't know. <laughs> and so we'd fill up for gas, and he'd go in to pay for the gas. Well, I had a credit card. God, I just paid for it right at the pump. And he'd say, well, they said it was paid for. And I said, well, they probably like us. <laughs> and we'd drive away. He was amazed. We'd wake up, he'd, but on the other hand, he'd wake up some mornings and, and you know, because we were in a hotel room. He wouldn't know where he was. He wouldn't know why he was there. He wanted to know why in the hell all those boats were attached to the back of the van. Well, in any event, we had a very nice time, really nice time. The following year, when I asked him if he wanted to do it again, he didn't want to do it again. He was afraid. So my mom jumped at the chance, and she and I went. So I was a pretty lucky guy to be able to spend that time with both of my parents, doing something that a lot of people never have the opportunity to do. When I was at my high school reunion, my 50th high school re reunion, my I mentioned, I told a story about how my dad had punched out a teacher, Mr. Clower. Mr. Clower, my dad had to go to the John. Now, first of all, my dad was a troublemaker. There was no question about it. My dad was definitely a troublemaker. So I got the, the light just now, so I got to move along, but I don't want to. But we're going to do it anyway. Anyway, Mr. Clower, my dad ducked, decked Mr. Clower. My dad put him out. And as a result, my dad was out of high school. And he didn't graduate high school. My dad set it up so that Mr. Clower was never my high school teacher, because I went to all the same schools my dad did. My grandfather indentured my father as a result of this to a farmer in northern Wisconsin. It was hard work and my dad liked it. And my grandfather every second Sunday would, would come up and visit him in northern Wisconsin and sometimes even bring my dad's present girlfriend along with him. 
So my dad was dying, and he was on morphine, and one night he, had, they were, he was given too much morphine, and I was sitting in the room with him, and uh, he was hallucinating. And I had my, uh, my, um, this is a little trick I learned, by the way. You just go like this, and then you're able to continue. <laughs> so the morphine was, was too much. He was hallucinating, and he was stroking my arm and talking to the kitty because that pretty kitty was my arm. My dad addressed me as his best friend because he didn't know who I was anymore. So one of the things my dad did at his, well, at his memorial service, we were giving a talk and my sister was just giving punchlines from my dad's jokes. And so when I came up to talk, then a bunch of my cousins, he used to call my, my dad Uncle Buck, um, hollered out, tell the one about Stosh. In other words, a joke. And so I proceeded, that was, by the way, that wasn't one of my dad's jokes. So I proceeded to tell a couple of jokes of my dad. So I'm going to give you a couple, and then I'm going to be out of here. So the guy walks into the doctor's office. And the doctor said, what seems to be your problem? Now these jokes dad told at the dinner table. A lot of, and I mean, a lot of these are pretty off color. I won't get there. This isn't too bad. Doctor said, what seems to be your problem? And the guy says, you know, he says, I have a bowel movement every morning at seven o'clock. The doctor says, hey, that's great. A lot of people like to be so regular. The guy says, I don't get up till eight. <laughs> So the guy goes into the doctor's office and he, the doctor says, what seems to be your problem? The guy says, I'm so fat. He said, I haven't been able to see it for years. And the doctor says, well, you're gonna have to diet. The guy says, what color? <laughs> Thank you. Hey, that's gonna do it for all of our death, sex, and money stories from the May event. And uh, a lot of great stories. Hey, don't worry, though. This isn't our last episode from our last season. I've still got a few more episodes in the bank that'll be coming out over the next month. But maybe you're itching to come to a live Madison Story Slam event, and I've got good news. You're not going to have to wait too much longer. Our next Story Slam event, the beginning of our 2017-2018 season, is Saturday, August 19th at the Wilmar Center. Doors will open at 6, and stories start at 7. The theme is the good, the bad, and the awkward. I'm sure you've heard that before. 
because you listened to the beginning part of this story, uh, this episode, excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm a little off my game because I'm literally standing in a closet holding a microphone and speaking into a box of foam that I made, which is kind of weird, uh, but it does uh, help my uh, audio quality just a little bit. Not, uh, you know, the most in the world, but a little bit. So, hey, uh, again, thanks to Ale Asylum for sponsoring this show and believing in what we do. Thank you to the audience for believing in what we do. And uh, come to Story Slam in August and tell a story about how you've been so awkward and good. We'll see you next time.